my guest for the day, grew up in Boston as a die-hard Red Sox fan. When he lost interest in his pursuit of an economics career, he went to law school. A World Series loss and a day of depression led him to collect thousands of mustards and start the National Mustard Museum. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. I think it was clear to me that I would eventually contact Mr. Levinson when in search of amazing Madisonians. As a mustard lover myself, I felt the passion of his love for the condiment. This interview unveiled his journey through law into mustard that even if you're not a mustard fan, you will still appreciate. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Mr. Barry Levinson. Well, I was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, right uh, about 40 miles uh, west of Boston. Uh, I had a brother uh, born in 1948, so you can figure out how old I am. Uh, and uh, it was, um, boy, it was a pretty typical 50s family, I guess. Um, I went to public school and I grew up a Red Sox fan. Of course, you grew up in Massachusetts, that's what you do. Uh, and uh, I went to public school and then I went to college in Worcester at Clark University, uh, known for being the only school at which Sigmund Freud delivered any American lectures. And um, it was a good school. Uh, I was actually, uh, I majored in economics, even though it was famous for psychology. I may be the only uh, graduate of Clark that never took a graduate, a uh, psychology class. Uh, But I majored in economics. I was fortunate enough to have an internship at the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House. And I came to Wisconsin to go to graduate school. All right. Uh, so, would, yeah. So, I mean, backing you up a little bit, uh, like, yeah. so when you were in middle school, high school, did you have like an idea of what did you want, what you wanted to do for a living? Or was that like, did you want to get a, a deg- degree right away? Or what was your plan there, you know, before? You know, I, I don't think I really had any clear ideas. I, I think I at one time thought I would be a lawyer. Uh, because I grew up watching the Perry Mason TV show, and uh, my uh, best friend and I would act out uh, Perry Mason dramas uh, when we were like in fifth grade. Uh, But I don't know how serious I was about that. Little did I know that uh, I would end up doing that. Uh, Even though I uh, majored in economics and came to Wisconsin in 1970 to go to graduate school, in economics. Uh, But uh, after a year, I decided, um, no, that wasn't for me. And I learned why they call economics the dismal science, because it was dismal. I just didn't enjoy it. Um, I I didn't know what to do. And I was walking down Bascom Hill and I saw that there was a law school. So I walked in, I said, can I transfer into the law school? I said, it doesn't work that way. You have to take the LSATs, uh, which are the uh, Uh, graduate uh, or the law school entrance uh, exam. Uh, That's partly what they judge it on. Uh, 
And uh, fortunately, I got in and went to law school, although I had no clue what I would do uh, once I graduated. I think I was kind of lost. Yeah. Uh, so what was bit. that? What was that experience? What were you feeling at the time when you were like just coming into law school and you, and everyone else, you know, like what was that? Yeah. What was that experience of switching, you know, majors and career and, and yeah. Well, you know, I, I was, to me, it was just, okay. I, I was not taking economics classes. I was taking law classes. So I didn't see that as a major shift. Uh, in in what I was doing. Um, I think I want to back up because I think one of the things that really influenced me was uh, my semester in Washington, D.C. at the Council of Economic Advisors. And what what influenced me was the fact that uh, one of the uh, senior economists, uh, her name was Irene Lurie, invited me to dinner at her apartment. And when I got there, she had made something called chicken Bordeaux, and I was totally floored by it. I mean, I grew up, you know, liking good food, uh, but I certainly didn't my, fancy myself as any kind of a gourmet. It wasn't a big deal, but I was completely floored by what she had done. I said, Irene, how did you do this? And she said, it's no big deal, you know, and she showed me it was from the uh, New York Times cookbook. I said, that was it? I said, yeah, it's really, it's not hard. And I was just raving about it. And uh, the next day or the day after, on my desk uh, from Irene was a copy of the New York Times cookbook uh, with a note saying, use it. And I did. Uh, I decided at that point uh, that I was going to start cooking. And I remember even going home uh, after that semester and starting to cook for my family. Had you, uh, had you cooked at all as a kid or anything? Was that, or was no, that completely nothing. new to you? It was completely new. I had never cooked wow. a thing. My mother was a, was a good cook. Um, you know, she was a good baker, uh, and you know, good, wholesome food, but nothing very fancy, but boy, this just totally turned me around. And I decided that, you know, I was going to eat well. Uh, and the, the ironic thing is that my roommate, while I was down in Washington, uh, also another uh, Clarkie, um, loved one thing and ate one thing only, spam. He would have fried spam. He would bring spam sandwiches uh, to work. He was at the uh, Brookings Institute. And I said, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I am going to eat spam every night. So uh, when it was my turn to cook and we alternated, I would try and make something interesting, something, uh, you know, creative. So that's kind of what got me started uh, on the food road. Uh, then I'm out in Wisconsin uh, in law school. And um, I remember being invited over to uh, a, a classmate's uh, house where they had, uh, oh, about six or seven people uh, staying, where they had a cooking contest. Well, it was a cooking contest. Actually, it wasn't. Uh, what it was, they would say, you can enter our cooking contest. We'll provide uh, all the ingredients and you do the cooking. Well, it, was, it wasn't a contest. It was just a way for them to get someone to cook for them. But I remember doing that. I said, you yeah, know, that's a very clever idea. And I finally figured it out. You know, there's no contest. There's no prize. But 
um, it was something that I was obviously interested in. Uh, and sure enough, uh, you know, they told me I won, but I guess they told everybody they won. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, I, I did not uh, see myself going into anything relating to food. Uh, when I, I finally, when I graduated uh, in, uh, I think it was 1974, uh, I had no idea what I was going to do with my, my life uh, as a lawyer. Uh, you know, even though I was certainly an overachiever uh, back in high school and in college, I, I always tell people I, I, um, I finished at the, in the, the top 90% of my class in uh, law school. Uh, and uh, if you think about it, that's not very good, <laughs> but it sounds great. Uh, anyway, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, and I remember getting a phone call from the placement office asking uh, what I was doing because they wanted to update their records. And the woman on the other end, you know, who called me, uh, obviously uh, sensed that I was hesitating. And I said, do you need a job? And I said, yeah, I do. And that's when I started working for the state. Uh, I was an administrative law judge. I started out just as a limited term employee. Uh, and it was okay, uh, but I think I wanted more, and I finally became uh, a court a lawyer uh, for the uh, uh, for the Department of Industry, Labor, and Human Relations. So were you? So, so were you still cooking food and stuff at this time? Yeah, I was still, food was still doing it. Yeah, I was still doing it, but I don't think it was something that. I mean, I there were a lot of people that just liked to cook and liked good food. Um, I think uh, maybe it was around that time I actually joined a wine club. It was a, one of my law school classmates had started this. And so it was a, a gathering uh, once a month that uh, we would meet at people's houses and try different wines. And uh, that kind of morphed into more food oriented because there would be a summer picnic at which everybody would cook. Uh, there would also be a winter uh, kind of holiday party where people would have champagne and would do some cooking. Uh, and, you know, that was just kind of, it was, it was okay. But what happened then, uh, I think, I, 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 number one, I, I took a year off. Uh, that was, um, oh, uh, 1978 and 79. I took a year off to travel uh, throughout Europe. Uh, and I came back and, uh, of course I had, you know, with a, a year in Europe, you're going to eat some great food. Yeah. And I was even more pumped about food. Uh, and I, I then decided, you know, working for, uh, the department of industry, labor and human relations, doing unemployment comp, uh, court cases was kind of limiting. So I applied for a job and got it. Uh, at the Public Service Commission, which is the Public Utility Commission in Wisconsin. So why did you, I mean, where did you, what countries did you go to in Europe? And, and why did you think that that job was, was uh, holding you back or, or limiting you? Well, first of all, the, the countries, uh, I started out in England, then Scotland and Ireland, uh, then flew down to Spain uh, as the weather got colder, uh, then across into southern France then into Italy, then in what was Yugoslavia, uh, then uh, up into, let's see, Hungary and Austria, uh, Switzerland, 
then uh, in France again, where uh, the, the person I traveled with, uh, we, we got an apartment uh, in Paris uh, near the Place de la Bastille. And we were able to do some cooking because we couldn't afford to go out all the time. But we did find some great restaurants, inexpensive restaurants. And that just got me even more interested in food. One of the things I learned was when, while I was in Spain, uh, I don't know if you know, the national dish of Spain is paella, right? which is a great rice dish. It's rice and uh, it, it can have uh, anything. A lot of with different it. It things. Yep. A lot of different things. And I loved it. And uh, I think I, I was there for about three months and I think I had paella uh, maybe six times a week wow. because it varied. It varied, you know, it, it could be ordinary, it could be extraordinary. Uh, and finally, in my last week there, uh, when I found this wonderful place and went back and was raving about it, uh, the chef owner uh, took me in back and showed showed me how to make it, how he did it. He did it on an outdoor grill, uh, which I think was uh, critical to that. And he said, you must use saffron. And I, he said uh, to me, he said, can you get saffron? I said, I think so. He actually gave me a little bag of saffron, which is the world's most expensive spice. Uh, and I took it, uh, I remember, uh, throughout, I, I kept it with me throughout the entire trip. Um, and finally, uh, returning through, uh, through England and back to the U.S. And I decided that uh, even though I, I had a leave of absence from my job, doing court work for unemployment comp, I wanted something a little more interesting. And I applied for and got a job doing uh, various uh, kinds of legal things for the Public Utilities Commission in Wisconsin called the Public Service Commission. And that's when the food law bug bit me. Why? Because at one time, uh, and, and in, in some areas, uh, railroads were regulated by state utility commissions. And I was reading, I don't know why I was reading it. I was up in the, in the library of the Public Service Commission and I was thumbing through an old reporter uh, with old decisions from back, I think in the 30s or 40s or when it was. And I came across this fascinating case involving whether or not the Fred Harvey houses, Fred Harveys were everywhere uh, along the highways uh, in the U.S. Uh, and also in the rail stations. And there was a particular one, I think in Oklahoma, that required men to wear sport jackets uh, to be in the dining room. And there was a question as to whether or not uh, that was legal. And there was a a decision written by, I think it might have been the Oklahoma Supreme Court, that took advantage of that uh, little fact situation to explain the that the, the progress of fine dining in the world. You know, he he just went off on a great tangent. It was fascinating, and I then began starting to collect materials on food and law. So, how did and, you? Yeah. How did you think you were going to get into this uh, switch kind of, kind of, uh, I mean, still in law, but switch kind of a path a little bit? How did you think you were going to? 
Well, um, my, my law journey continued uh, because uh, I think I got a little tired of the Public Service Commission. Obviously, my, I have a short attention span. <laughs> it must be. So um, I heard there was an opening at the Attorney General's office here in Wisconsin, which I think a lot of people considered like the best job, uh, the prime job for lawyers working for the state. And I, I applied for a job and they said, we're going to put you in the criminal appeals division. And I said, no, there's, there's got to be a mistake. I had never done a criminal case in my life. And the only experience I had with criminal law was back in my first year of law school when I took the required uh, substantive criminal law and procedural criminal law. That was it. And they said, no, you'll do fine because we've read the briefs that you've written. Uh, we know you've argued cases at the state Supreme Court. So we want you to do uh, criminal appeals. I remember the very first case, I figured they'll start me off with a simple one. They brought in a stack of transcript, uh, of transcripts and uh, exhibits from a case. It was a it was a murder case. And I said, you're starting me off on a real murder case involving a drug deal that went bad uh, and two brothers and all kinds of complicated issues. And they said, you'll do fine. Well, uh, I took the case. I did it. Uh, and, you know, it, it worked out OK. But it was something that happened during my tenure as an assistant attorney general that totally turned my life around. It was 1986, and my beloved Red Sox were once again in the World Series. Now, I grew up watching them uh, play in the World Series in 1967, and they lost in seven games. Uh, then in 1975, uh, when they played the Cincinnati Reds and lost in seven games, 1986 comes along. They had a great team. Uh, a lot of people picked them to win. Game six, and I'm ready to celebrate in my in my house uh, that I lived on the east side of Madison because it was the sixth game and the Red Sox were ahead. And if they had won that game, they would have won the World Series. It went to the 10th inning. It was tied. And the Red Sox scored two runs in the top of the inning. And there were two outs in the bottom of the inning, and then it all fell apart. They lost that game. You know, they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. And sure enough, they lost uh, the seventh game. That would have been October 27th, I believe, 1986. And I was so depressed. I couldn't sleep. So I got in my car and went to Woodman's on the east side of Madison. It's an all-night supermarket. I decided I just needed to walk just because I couldn't sleep. So I walked up and down the aisles, pushing an empty cart, and I decided, this is crazy. A grown man bent out of shape because of a baseball game. Come on, get over it. Collect something. Get a hobby. I said, okay, what will I collect? I was walking down the condiment aisle, and for some reason, it was 2.30 a.m., I looked at my watch and I heard this voice kind of say to me from the mustards, if you collect us, they will come. 
and I began collecting jars of mustard. Uh, it was it was just a hobby. You know, I kept my job. This was um, 1986. I wasn't going to, you know, totally go off the deep end. I would just collect jars of mustard. And um, I did that. Six months later, when I had about 100 jars in my collection, I had the opportunity to argue a case at the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Griffin versus Wisconsin, a, a fairly important Fourth Amendment case. But what's important and significant about that is what happened on the way over to the court. I was staying at the Hyatt in DC and running a little late. So, you know, I've got my new suit, I've got my briefcase, I'm running down the hallway at the Hyatt. And suddenly I saw out of the corner of my eye, a little jar of mustard on a discarded room service tray. And I looked down, it was one of those, you know, one and a half, two ounce jars, you know, for room service. And it was unopened. And I looked at it and I said, I don't recognize this. And I'm thinking, would it be theft for me to take this unopened jar on a discarded room service tray that the hospital, that the hotel was not uh, expecting to get back, but they could reuse it because the seal was still on it. So I didn't have time to research the issue thoroughly. So I think I did what every good lawyer would have done. I saw no one was looking. I just took it. And I... I brought it with me. I didn't have time to go back to my room. So I brought it with me to the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, even back then you had to go through a metal detector and, you know, you had to go through all kinds of security. But being uh, one of the lawyers who was arguing, uh, it, it was not a big deal. But the, uh, the marshal of the court uh, said, why do you have a jar of mustard? And I said, do you really want to know? And he said, no, that's okay. And I argued that case, uh, Griffin v. Wisconsin, with that little jar of mustard in my pocket. And this was a case that, by all rights, I should not have won. It was a really difficult case. And all of my colleagues said, there's no way you're going to win that one. Well, I won by a vote of five to four. And I think it was the mustard that did it. So I, I came back and I said, you know, one day, one day, I am going to start a museum dedicated to mustard. Well, that was 1986 or 1987. It was actually March of 1987 when I argued the case, uh, or April, April of, of 87. And I said, you know, one day. So uh, 1988 passed, 1989, 1990, and my collection began to grow. Um, uh, I think I had um, something like eight or 900 jars. And as I reached a thousand, I decided, you know, I'm going to open a museum. I'm going to open a museum dedicated to mustard because I had, you know, about a thousand jars of mustard. I had mustard tins, mustard pots. I'd learned about mustard history and I quit in 1991 uh, and opened what was then the Mount Horeb Mustard Museum, obviously in Mount Horeb where I was living. And I opened that in April of 1992. Uh, I, I had quit my job. I probably should not have quit. I should have just done it as a hobby. But uh, I guess it was my midlife crisis. Uh, so, so was was mustard even something that you that was like uh, special to you before you started collecting it? Like, did you like a, had you were you a mustard connoisseur before you started collecting or? 
or what was mustard to you kind of in those early Well, years? it was an ingredient and it was one that I did use in cooking. I remember making a poached lamb and a mustard cream sauce, a tarragon mustard cream sauce. Uh, but otherwise, it was just another ingredient uh, that, you know, I thought, you know, it obviously it had a history. Um, and I had heard of Dijon mustard, even though at that time I, I had been in Paris and been in the south of France. I had never uh, been in Dijon. Uh, Dijon is a city in France about the size of Madison. It's also a university town. Um, and um, that it, it's, um, let's see, it's south, uh, southeast, uh, about f- um, three hours southeast of, of Paris. And that is, of course, where Dijon mustard comes from. But I, you know, I learned about that, but I hadn't gone there at the time. So there I was opening a mustard museum. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I remember getting a loan from the bank. Uh, back then, you could get just walk in and say, here's my idea. And they said, sounds like uh, a good idea. Here, how much do you want? Well, I didn't get enough, but it was enough to get started. Uh, uh but I was then, it was then that my wife um, said, you know, you've got all of this stuff, all of these um, boxes filled with cases and notes and whatever about food law. We're going to throw it out. I said, no, we can't throw it out. And she said, all right, then write a book about it or I'm throwing it out. So I said, okay. So I wrote a book. Uh, it was called Habeas Codfish, uh, which was uh, kind of a playful uh, approach to food and law. And uh, it was published by the University of Wisconsin Press. And uh, after that, I began getting uh, inquiries about speaking on food law, which I occasionally did. And eventually I was approached by the law school to teach food law, uh, which I have been teaching now. Uh, in the spring semester for about the last eight or 10 years, uh, which is just another thing I do, as well as, of course, running the Mustard Museum. So Although I know, yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, mm-hmm. so, so how many students, I mean, take take food law? I'm just curious about that that number of... Well, it's a small class, and I've had as, you know, it's limited to 24. Uh, I've had as few as 11 and I think last time, uh, last year I taught it, uh, I actually uh, let them uh, put even more students in. So I think I had 26 students. Uh, and they have to argue cases, research cases uh, involving food and the law, uh, which I really enjoy doing. You know, I love it. It's kind of my, the, the other thing that, that, uh, that's a really important part of my life, as well as the Mustard Museum. Now, the Mustard Museum used to be just one thing. It was a for-profit entity. I tried to make money um, by selling jars of mustard, doing a little mail order. Uh, About four years ago, I sold off the business part, but I stayed involved with the the now nonprofit wing, which is the actual museum. And right now, we have over 6,000 jars of mustard hundreds of antique mustard pots, mustard tins, mustard ads. It really is a a museum uh, in the true sense of the word, and it is a nonprofit. Uh, And I think that so many people, uh, when they come in, they just smile. And to me, 
you know, I always say it's better to see smiles on faces rather than tags on toes, because that's the uh, the world I had come from, and a criminal law and uh, criminal appeals. You're doing the most serious felonies, and it was exclusively a felony practice. Uh, you know, I had a lot of murder cases, uh, assault cases. It was pretty grim, uh, and now you know I had this opportunity to to make people laugh and smile because let's face it, you know, I realize a, a museum dedicated to mustard is kind of crazy. And, but I think we've always needed this little bit of crazy. Uh, and I think that people say, you know, I'm glad you have this, you know, I enjoy coming here. Uh, you know, and I, I enjoy looking at what you've got. I had no idea there were this many mustards. And this year we published a book called The Art of Mustard. And it's not a cookbook. Uh, what it is, it's got pictures of over 600 of the exhibits, mustard tins, uh, mustard pots, um, mustard jars uh, from, uh, from you know many, many years ago. It's really the history of mustard, but it's also an art um, form because we've got paintings, uh, we've got all kinds of things. Uh, mustard in medicine, we have a chapter on that. So we, we just published it uh, in, uh, it would have been the summer of 2020. And unfortunately, that was right when the uh, pandemic was uh, hitting very hard, even though it's still been hitting hard. As a result, um, almost all of the tours uh, that were uh, that had scheduled uh, to be uh, at the Mustard Museum, they all canceled, and I, I understand that. So we didn't see nearly as many visitors uh, to the Mustard Museum uh, last year. I think we had about thirty-five thousand visitors during the year. Uh, people do come. Uh, you know, it, it's um, I, I guess it's just one of those things that uh, people hear about and want to see. We've been very fortunate. Uh, we've been on the Food Network um, several times. We've been. Uh, my wife and I were on the Oprah Winfrey show, right? Uh, and um, so, you know, which was really a hoot. Yeah. So, how great. did you? How did you? How did you get yourself like on on Morning Edition and Oprah and the Food Network? How did you get yourself on on these major? Uh, I mean, news networks. How did you market the museum to to sources I, I didn't. that wide? I I didn't. I, I really didn't market it. We never approached uh, anyone. Like in terms of Oprah. My wife got a phone call at home saying, we understand uh, that your husband has a mustard museum. Well, we're doing a show about people who are passionate about their work. Uh, would you guys like, do you have any B-roll, you know, which, you know, for people not familiar with it, just some footage, uh, film footage that you can send us. And uh, as it turned out, we didn't, but there was someone from a Chicago TV station that was coming to film us the next day. So I said, let me see what I can do. And I asked them, uh, it was Wild Chicago was the name of it. And I said, is there any chance you could shoot us some B-roll, just some footage to send down to Oprah? And they said, sure, we'll do it. Well, Oprah got it and their producer said, oh, this is, this is too good. You know, you're crazy. You got to be on the show. So, uh, of course, at that time, it was filmed in Chicago. They actually sent a stretch limo uh, to bring us to Chicago and the studio. I thought they were just being nice. And appa apparently the reason they do that 
is they don't want us to get lost. They want to have good control over where we are and to make sure we show up. So uh, we were able to, uh, we brought some mustards and we were specifically told, now do not try and force mustard on Oprah. You know, she'll talk to you about it. You know, you can show your mustards, but do not try and force any mustard on her. Well, Oprah was, she was delightful. And she said, did you bring some mustards for me to taste? I said, "Mm, yeah, I guess we did. So she tasted mustard. We tasted them on air. And there was one that she said, this is my favorite. It was a walnut Dijon mustard from France. And she said, this is my favorite. And of course, uh, people saw the show and they called the Mustard Museum and they said, can you send us the uh, a jar or two of uh, the Oprah mustard? I said, do you mean the walnut mustard? He said, oh, whatever she liked, I want. <laughs> so that was the power of Oprah. So we did sell quite a bit of that. Um, and uh, we've actually kept in touch with the show. Uh, we were actually on the, uh, it was a, two years ago, uh, she did a show called Where Are They Now? And send someone to film us uh, for that because she wanted to know if we're still doing this. And a couple times uh, over the last uh, 15 or 20 years, uh, her producers have called us to ask uh, if we would send some mustard to her as a, as a holiday gift. So that was probably the, uh, that, that was the coolest um, uh, thing that I think we, we, we did. You know, there were a lot of other shows, but, you know, nothing compares to our experience with Oprah because even after the show, Uh, When she was done filming, she wanted to stay and talk with us. It turns out that um, she had gone to the same high school uh, for a year that my wife had gone to. So they talked about that. And she wants to talk about mustard and she wanted me to send her some mustard. She was delightful. She was absolutely delightful. You know, that uh, what you see there is what you really get. So uh, that's kind of when uh, everything really started to roll in terms of the Mustard Museum becoming, I think, a destination for people, people who are curious and people who are also foodies, people who really enjoy food. You know, why not? You know, it can be challenging. Uh, It can be very difficult running a food business. Uh, So, you know, it's just been, it's been a wild ride. Uh, It has been. And what has happened that over the years, So many of the people that were customers have become good friends. Um, And even though I'm no longer part of the business part, I I hang out there, I answer the phone a lot. And especially when it's someone that I know, uh, and these are people that uh, I've then met uh, at times, we've gone out to dinner, uh, we talk a lot. Uh, there are just um, a lot of friends that you can make uh, in, in a food business, I suppose in any business, but it has really opened up a lot of, a lot of doors for me uh, in, in that way. And I still teach food law um, and I still, actually I'm also, uh, as just a, another side thing, I work at the University of Wisconsin Medical School as a standardized patient. Uh, a standardized patient is basically a pretend patient for right, med students. Right. So I've been doing that for a couple of years. Um, 
I've been doing some other writing. I actually wrote a book called The Seventh Game that came out uh, in 2004. Uh, and it was about the seventh games, then the, the seventh games of the World Series. And I, I remember uh, that was before the Red Sox had won a World Series, which they finally did in the fall of 2004. The book came out in the spring of 2004, and I dedicated it to my father, who really who brought me to Fenway Park when I was a kid, who uh, played catch with me uh, every day that I wanted to. He would hit fly balls to me up at the field. Uh, he was my, my buddy. We watched Red Sox games on TV together. We went to Fenway Park together. And, you know, he wasn't doing real well back then. So I dedicated it to him. And the dedication reads at the end, hang in, Dad, this will be the year. And it was. I know you, when you moved from from the Mount Hora Muster Museum and then you became, you know, the National Muster Museum. And, and I know there was... So what? tell me about moving locations and, and kind of changing the branding a little bit. What was that? Did that align with you selling well, the business part of it or... Or yeah, no, not really, because uh, it was actually eleven years ago when we moved. Partly because um, we really no longer had a space in uh, Mount Horeb. We had been in two different spaces in Mount Horeb, and the we were renting, and the landlord said, "You know, you've got to either you buy the building or I'm going to sell it, and you're going to have to leave." And I could see that we just had it; we couldn't stay where we were. And we, we had been in Middleton. We were familiar with Middleton. Uh, we actually had met the, uh, the city uh, administrator uh, who seemed like a really nice fellow. And he said, yeah, why don't you uh, think about coming uh, here? And, and also the, uh, head, the uh, director of the Chamber of Commerce said, yeah, you should come here as well. So it seemed like a nice place. And we decided to move it. And obviously, we were no longer in Mount Horeb, so we had to change our name. And we decided, let's just be the National Mustard Museum, because there was no other mustard museum. So that's what uh, that's when we kind of rebranded. But at the time we moved, we were still just one entity. It was all rolled into one. It was about two years later that I decided it would be a good idea to separate uh, the museum uh, from the business part. Uh, one reason was as a nonprofit museum, uh, we might be able to get grants, uh, which turned out to be true uh, because there are a lot of foundations, whatever, that do have money available, but you have to be a nonprofit. If you're a for-profit entity, you know, you can't even fill out an application. So I said, okay, we'll do that. So it was about 10 years ago, I think, uh, uh, eight or 10 years ago, we uh became a separate nonprofit entity. Uh, I sold the business part about four years ago, and I am now just the, I guess, the curator and founder of the museum. Um, but you may detect that writing has been an important part of my life. Uh, I also wrote a children's book called Mustard on a Pickle uh, for, for little children. And I became part of the theater community about uh, five or six years ago, or maybe a little longer. Uh, and I wrote a play called No One Goes to Hell for the Food. And 
fortunately, uh, one of the theater groups decided to produce it, and it uh, ran for nine performances in, uh, that would have been 2019. Uh, and uh, I think it was it, it was fun. It really wasn't about mustard, although mustard does get mentioned uh, a few times in the play. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a dark comedy or a light tragedy. I guess it's the same thing. Uh, but, um, you know, people, it's, it's not available on YouTube, uh, except it's a private, um, it is privately done on YouTube. So if anyone wants to, to see it, uh, get hold of me, curator at mustardmuseum.com, and I will send you the links so you can watch it. It's a full length play. Uh, and, um, it was great. I, I was just delighted to see it. Uh, I went to every performance because, <laughs> Uh, I thought they did such a terrific job. Uh, the acting, the theater community in Madison is spectacular. There's a lot of talent. It was actually the theater community that got me interested and involved in the standardized patient because essentially you're, you're an actor. So, you know, it, I, I guess it's the fact that I don't have much of an attention span or I just, I want to do everything. Um, I, I can't say no. So who knows what the next adventure will be, but the Mustard Museum continues and uh, we're somehow, we are going to survive uh, the pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we've, uh, we had to do National Mustard Day, which we've been, done, been doing every year for the last, what, 25 years or so, 26 years. We had to do it virtually this past year. Uh, normally we get about uh, six to 7,000 people. It's a big street festival, the first Saturday in August. Uh, we also host the Worldwide Mustard Competition, where mustards from all over the world get sent to be judged in different categories. And uh, then maybe you'd like to be a judge this year. We'll have to do social distancing uh, for 2021, but uh, we're going to have the, the competition. We're not going to let uh, this pandemic stop us. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's just been an adventure. It's been wonderful. Yeah. You know. So with this massive collection that you had mm -hmm. and, and now turned into the museum, do you have a favorite? <laughs> oh, a favorite thing? I suppose the, if, if there's one thing that I say, you know, this is one thing I could never lose. It's the jar of mustard I had with me at the Supreme Court. There's a special exhibit just on that. It's called the Supreme Court Mustard. And I tell people, if you, if you know anything about Supreme Court history, uh, that you'll realize the poetic justice of me bringing mustard to the Supreme Court, because it is the court that gave us Justice Felix Frankfurter and Chief Justice Warren Burger. It was only a matter of time before the mustard showed up. So, yeah, and what kind of mustard was that little pocket mustard? <laughs> it was uh, it was it was called Dickinson Stone Ground mustard. It was kind of an ordinary uh, mustard. Uh, uh, it has, of course, uh, deteriorated somewhat because uh, the seal on it was not perfect, uh, and the label uh, from from being touched, I think, too many times. I've actually uh, let people borrow it. Some lawyers borrow it when they're having their first argument at the state Supreme Court uh, for good luck. Uh, but right now it's uh, in an exhibit behind glass. Uh, and I suppose that's the one that means the most to me because that was the, the signal that I got that one day 
uh, I'm going to leave the law and uh, be a, a mustard museum curator. What kind of mustard do you eat like on a daily basis? Like uh, how much and what kinds, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, all, I'm a big fan of Dijon mustard, you know, real classic Dijon. And um, about five years ago, well, maybe it was more, it was about eight years ago, I think, that my wife and I uh, finally took a trip to Dijon. Uh, where we uh, were, you know, we were actually in the newspaper uh, for for being for visiting there. Uh, we presented a medal to one of the mustard companies that had won uh, a mustard for its Dijon mustard, uh, won a medal, uh, and they had the the press there when we presented it with them, uh, and we just had a wonderful time uh, eating uh, some of the great uh, Dijon mustard dishes. Uh, that were famous there. Uh, we've toured other, several other mustard companies as well that are generally not open to touring, but we were able to visit and see how they, um, what they do. And curiously, they said, now listen, you cannot tell about you know, what we do because it's a secret. Well, guess what? They all have the exact same secret. <laughs> so it's not really a secret, but they think it's a secret. Uh, but it was it was just wonderful uh, being in Dijon. I, I mean, Dijon mustard. I love horseradish mustards, fruit mustards, uh, sweet hot mustard. We actually um, have made for us uh, our own brand of mustard called Slim and, and none. none. That's my favorite. Yeah. That's yeah. my favorite. Oh, it's so many people. It is their favorite. Um, it's a sweet hot mustard, and it was based on based on a recipe that we had developed with a radio personality down in Chicago, Spike O'Dell. Uh, Spike would call various people around the U.S. He called me because he thought I was strange, I guess, and he thought I was funny. And he would just call and talk to me. And finally, one day, I talked to his producer and said, Spike, uh, tell Spike that I should just come down. I'm only you know two and a half hours away. Why don't we taste mustards on the air, You know, the two of us? And... It happened, and it was then that I uh, came up with the idea of doing a, a mustard. I said, Spike, we'll call it Bite Your Butt Mustard. How about that? He said, no, I can't do that uh, without permission of the uh, station. I said, how about this? I will donate $1 a jar to the WGN Neediest Kids Fund. That's for every jar we sell. And it doesn't matter. It's not a question of percentage of profits. I just want to do it. I think you'd enjoy it. And it was Spike's Bite Your Butt Mustard. And it raised, I think, over $800,000 uh, for the Neediest Kids Fund. We made that into, we, we had it uh, kind of reverse engineered and made it uh, our Slim and None Sweet and Nicely Hot Mustard. So it is our number one selling mustard. So we love it too. Yeah, I think I think my favorites are probably the the dill pickle one and the the slim and none one. Yeah. So you know it is a fabulous mustard. You know, and the nice thing is um, the mustard the mustard world uh, is is made up of a few big companies like French's, for example, and French's is a sponsor of the nonprofit museum. They've been uh, terrific. Uh, but there's a lot of little mustard companies, and we pretty much know all of them. Uh, one of the mustard makers down in Florida, uh, we went there, uh, visited their home, and uh, it's Delicai Gourmet. And I noticed on the wall uh, in their, in I think the den or wherever they were, we, we went into their house, 
uh, several gold records on the wall. And of course, like an idiot, I said, Lenny, uh, did you buy these on eBay? And he looked at me and said, no, I won them. He was the band leader for Tina Turner. <laughs> and, you know, so we've got some, you know, interesting people in the mustard business. A lot of them are very small, uh, but we pretty much know them all. And they're, you know, for the most part, they're great people. They really are. So I'm um, thank you so much for 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 talking with me and and sharing your story. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or tell the listeners? Well, um, one of the things you know, I'm a, a big fan of higher education. As a result, um, we founded the Mustard College, which is called, and I think you know this one, Ben. Poop on, poop on you. you, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can actually get a poop on you T-shirt, a poop on you sweatshirt. You can even get a degree. Uh, we have five different diplomas. You can get a JD degree, Juris Dufus. You can get a DDS degree, Doctor of Diddly Squat, and they actually they look better than most people's real diplomas. So, um, you know, we have fun. We have poop on you fight songs that uh, you know we'll just start singing uh, at the drop of a hat. Uh, because the way I look at it, a museum should be fun. And um, I think we are. We are a lot of fun. So thank you, Ben, for having me. And uh, as we say, hasta la mustard. If you want more information about Barry Levinson or the Mustard Museum, go to their website, mustardmuseum.com, or click the link in the description of this episode. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown, cover our editing, producing, and booking, also by me. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian Podcast. Time is running out to get your merchandise before Christmas using the promo code HOLIDAY in all caps on our website teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian Podcast or go to our website at themadisonianpodcast.com and click on the shop section. If you know of someone or would like to express interest in being on the show, just email me at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com ben at the madisonianpodcast.com to express interest in being on the show thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and stay tuned for an amazing episode next week